0: a great honour to be here and to read before so many wonderful writers and on such a panel. So thank you. Um, I thought I would read the opening to two books, um, but they're both quite brief. Um, I guess because I, my sense is that the opening inducts the reader into the method of the text. And certainly, um, often I begin with an image and sort of unfold from an image. Uh, which is the way that my novel called Sorry begins. Um, Sorry is set, I won't say too much about it, but it's set in the remote northwest of Western Australia, which is where I spent part of my childhood. Um, And it's also set during the Second World War, because that part of Australia was penetrated by Japanese bombers during the war. It's a novel about a friendship between an Aboriginal and a white child, um, and there's a murder, in which the white child's father uh, is stabbed, um, and this murder is replayed four times throughout the text. The child is a witness, but we don't really know, or I hope um, readers have confirmed this. We're not really sure who committed the murder. Um, but it's not operating as a who-done-it. It's operating as a kind of, among other things, an allegory about language and forgetting. Um, so that the child develops a stutter after she witnesses the murder and eventually becomes mute because she cannot bear to hear her own voice stuttering. Um, and she has forgotten what, what happened, so it's, it's a kind of allegory of historical amnesia. Uh, and to some extent uh, was written as a sort of agitprop novel at a time of great political despair um, because I worked for the Reconciliation Movement in Australia and our Conservative government had refused to apologise to Indigenous people. Um, So I'll just read the opening page and a half of this. Uh, This is how it goes. A Whisper, shh, the thinnest vehicle of breath. This is a story that can only be told in a whisper. There is a hush to difficult forms of knowing, an abashment, a sorrow an inclination towards silence. My throat is misshapen with all it now carries. My heart is a sour, indolent fruit. I think the muzzle of time has made me thus, has deformed my mouth, my voice, my wanting to say. At first, there was just this single image, her dress, the particular blue of hydrangeas spattered with the purple of my father's blood. She rose up from the floor into this lucid figure, unseemly but oh vivacious with gore. I remember I clung to her that we were alert and knowing there might have been a snake in the house for all our watchful attention. Don't tell them, she said. That was all. Don't tell them. Her eyes held my face, a fleck in watery darkness. Then we both wept. She washed me away. And when for comfort we held hands, overlapping as girls do, in riddled ways, in secret understandings and unspoken allegiances, the sticky stuff of my father's life bound us like sisters. Outside, at the screen door, our kelpies scratched and whimpered, demanding admittance. Mary and I ignored him. The scale and meaning to things at that moment was obdurately human. How to gather quietly and honourably all that is now scattered. How to reanimate the dead as if they were human after all, not symbols or functions that I must somehow deal with, not flimsy paper cutouts trimmed to my purpose. When I was born two years after my parents' marriage, my mother was 38, my father 36. Neither had expected children. Indeed, both were accustomed to self-enclosure and habituated to types of loneliness their partnership did not quite alleviate. I was a mistake, a slightly embarrassing intervention. I knew this melancholy status from earliest childhood. Predictably both treated me as kind as a smallish adult, arranging a regimen of behaviour, insisting on rules and repression, talking in stern pedagogical terms. Neither thought it necessary to express affection nor to offer any physical affirmations of a bond. I was, in consequence, a beseeching child, grumpy. Insecure, anxious for their approval, but also willfully emphatic in ways I knew would test and annoy them. In the battle between us, there were only losses. If it had not been for the Aboriginal woman who raised me, I would never have known what it is to lie against a breast. To sense skin as a gift, to feel the throb of a low pulse at the base of the neck, to listen in intimate and sweet propinquity, to air entering and resting and leaving. To air entering and leaving a resting body. So, and now I'll just redo the opening to um, to my most recent book called Five Bells. Um, five Bells is set on one day at Circular Quay, which is where the Opera House and the Sydney Harbour Bridge is. Um, it it's um, so it's in that modernist tradition of the novel of one day. There are five individuals <coughs> who all arrive at Circular Quay on the train at the same moment. They don't all see each other. Um, but there's a, if, if you've been to Sydney, there's a train that sort of comes around buildings, and you just catch little glimpses of the bridge in the opera house as the train pulls in, and then you go down to the quay. Uh, it's, it's a... I, mean, I, I won't talk too much about it now, but it's, it's a novel that, that tracks the lives of four, four of those people who arrive. The fifties a child. Um, and it... It moves in a kind of pattern sequence between each of them. At, some, at a certain point, the pattern reverses. Uh, and it's inspired, I, mean, I should say, it's inspired by a very famous modernist poem um, called Five Bells uh, by a poet called Kenneth Slessor. And I mention him because Claire mentioned him, which is interesting. Um, Slessor's Five Bells uh, is a poem that's an elegy written for an Irish cartoonist who drowned in Circular Quay. He fell from the ferry. His body was never recovered. And the elegy is um, an incredibly beautiful meditation on time as memory and time as water. So I I was picking up on the tropes of the poem, elegy, time, memory, and water, in my construction of this book. the poem was written in um, sorry, the, the, the drowning of this body, this cartoonist, his body was never recovered. so underneath that glittering surface of circular key with those big monuments is this lost body of the cartoonist. Um, I find that very moving, um, but it was uh, 1926, the drowning, and the poem was written 12 years later. So, I'll just read the opening. This is the first of the characters we meet. They all kind of arrive in a prologue, then the novel flips back to them waking and ends with them all falling asleep. Circular key. She loved even the sound of it. Before she saw the bu- before she saw the bowl of bright water swelling like something sexual. before she saw the blue unprecedented and the clear sky sloping upwards. She knew from the lilted words it would be a circle like no other, key to a new world. The train swung in a wide arc to emerge alongside sturdy buildings. And there it was, the first glimpses through struts of ironwork. And those blurred, partial visions were a quiet pleasure. Down the escalator, rumbling with its heavy body cargo, through the electronic turnstile which captured her bent ticket, then, caught in the crowd, she was carried outside. There was confusion at first, the shock of sudden light, all the signs, all the clamour. But the vista resolved, and she saw before her the row of ferry ports, each looking like a primary colour holiday pavilion, and the boats bobbing, their green and yellow forms toy-like, arriving, absorbing slow lines of passengers departing. With a trampoline heart, she saw the bridge to her left, its modern shape, its optimistic uparching. Familiar from postcards and television commercials, here now, here now was the very thing itself, neat and enthralling. There were tiny flags on top and the silhouetted ant forms of people arduously climbing this steep bow. It looked stamped against the sky as if nothing could remove it. It looked indelible. A coat hanger, Guidebook said, but it was so much grander than this implied. The coherence of it, the embrace the span of frozen hard labour, those bold pylons at the end, the multi-millions of hidden rivers. Ellie gawked like a child, unironic. She remembered something from school days, Janus with his two faces is the god of bridges, since bridges look both ways and are always double. There was the limpid memory of her school teacher, Miss Morrison, drawing Janus on the blackboard her inexpert, freckled hand trailing the chalk line of two profiles. With her back to the class, there was a kind of pathos to her form. She had thick-set calves and a curvature of the spine, and the class would have snickered in derision had it not been for her storytelling, which made any image so much less than the words it referred to. Roman god underlined, the genus profiles not matching, a simple image on the blackboard snagged at her feelings, and Ellie had loved it because it failed, because there was no mirror and no symmetry, and because the sight of Miss Morrison's firm calves always soothed and reassured her. From somewhere drifted the sound of a busking didgeridoo with an electronic backbeat. Boom, 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 boom. The didgeridoo dissolved in the air, thick and newly ancient. For tourists, Ellie thought, with no disparagement. For me, for all of us. Bom, 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 bom. In the democratic throng in the pandemonium of the crowd, she saw sunlight on the heads of Americans and Japanese. She saw small children with ice creams and tour groups with cameras. She heard how fine weather might liberate a kind of relaxed, tinkling chatter. There was a newsstand with tears of paper in several languages trembling in a light breeze, and people in booths here and there selling ferry tickets behind glass. There was a human statue in pale robes, resembling something rather classical, and before him a flattened hat, in which shone a few coins. A fringe of bystanders stood around, considering the many forms of art. Janus, origin of January. Ellie turned like someone remembering in the other direction. She had yet to see it fully. Past the last pier and the last ferry, there was a wharf with a line of ugly buildings, and beyond that, yes, an unimpeded view. It was moon-white and seemed to hold within it a great serious stillness. The fan of its chambers leant together, inclining to the water. An unfolding thing, shutters, a sequence of sorts. Ellie marvelled that it had ever been created at all, so singular a building, so potentially faddish or odd. And that shape of supplication, like a body bending into the obstruction of a low bow or a theological gesture. Ellie could imagine music in there, but not people somehow. It looked poised in a kind of alertness to acoustical meanings, concentrating on sound waves, open to circuit and flow. Yes, there it was, leaning into the pure morning sky. Ellie raised her camera and clicked, most photographed building in Sydney. In the viewfinder, it was flattened to an assemblage of planes and curves, perfect futurism. Marinetti might have dreamt it. Unmediated joy was nowadays unfashionable, not to mention the banal thrill of the famous city icon. But Ellie's heart opened like that form, unfolding into the blue. She was filled with corny delight and ordinary elation. Behind her, a rattled train noise reverberated up high, And the didgeridoo, now barely audible, continued its low, soft moaning. A child sounded a squeal, a fairy churned away. From another came the clang of a falling gangplank and the sound of passengers disembarking. Somewhere behind her, the Rolling Stones, jumping jack flash, sounded in a tinny ringtone. Boom, boom, distant now. Boom, 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 boom. And above it all, a melody of voices which seemed to arise from the water. Ellie felt herself at the intersection of so many currents of information. Why not be joyful against all the odds? Why not be childlike? She took a swig from her plastic water bottle and jauntily raised it. Cheers. She began to stride. With her cotton sun hat and her small backpack and this unexpected quiver in her chest, Ellie walked out into the live-long Sydney day. Sunshine swept around her, the harbour almost glittered. She lifted her face to the sky and smiled to herself. She felt as if, yes, yes, she was breathing in light. And just in case that sounds a bit Pollyanna-ish, the next next, um, voice uh, is a very, very depressed man um, who's self-medicating. And so he sees all the same things, but from a very different point of view. Thank you.